0: Well, I now invite you to uh, open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 8, as we uh, continue our way through the book of Acts. And this morning, uh, we're going to begin looking at uh, Philip and his ministry among the uh, Samaritans and then later on with the Ethiopian eunuch. We'll begin reading in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. And I'll read down through verse uh, 17 this morning. So as I'm reading God's uh, inspired Word, please give very careful attention to the reading of His truth. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all went from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ they were being baptized men and women alike even Simon himself believed and after being baptized he continued on with Philip as he was as he observed signs and great miracles taking place he was constantly amazed Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Well, May God bless the reading of His word. Uh, Part of the section I read dealt with Simon. Uh, Simon deserves a message all unto himself because he's a very uh, unique guy. So we'll uh, deal with him, Lord willing, at a later time. But uh, as we're working our way through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit loves to put the spotlight on some of God's special servants who are instruments in His hands to spread the growth of the gospel. First, Luke uh, shined the spotlight on Peter. And he'll do that again later on. But then he moved the spotlight and shined it on Stephen. And now he does it on a man by the name of Philip. These men are used by Jesus Christ to build His church. So the gospel had been preached in Jerusalem by the power of the Spirit. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 where Jesus gives the Great Commission to His disciples, the Gospel was not going to be restricted to Jerusalem nor to the Jews, but was spread out to the very ends of the world, going through Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So when Stephen was stoned to death, It was like the ringing of the bell in the church at Paris, which started and launched the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, so that when Stephen was stoned, that suddenly was the chiming ring of the bell, if you will, that launched a very great persecution among the believers in Jerusalem. As a result of that persecution, all the Christians began to flee and they began to to move out of Jerusalem into other areas. And that's where Philip now comes into play. So the Spirit of God now puts his light on Philip. And as Stephen was the very first Christian martyr, Philip will be known as the very first Christian missionary. So he's going to bring the gospel to the Samaritans. Now let's uh, begin by asking, well, who is Philip? Well, Philip is not the Philip of the twelve apostles. There is one of the apostles named Philip, but that's not him. This is the Philip who is numbered among the seven that were chosen in Acts chapter 6 to minister to the Hellenistic widows. Uh, Philip, by virtue of his name, was also a Hellenistic Jew, as opposed to a Hebraic Jew, Hellenistic Jews spoke Greek, they came out of a Greek culture, uh, so they were different than the native Hebrew Jews living in in Jerusalem. So Philip was a Hebraic uh, uh, excuse me a, a Hellenistic Jew, and obviously because of that would have had a, a heart to reach outsiders because the Hellenistic Jews were kind of looked upon by the Hebrew Jews as being somewhat outsiders. They accepted them as Jews, but still they were different. They come from a different background. They spoke a different language. They had a different Bible, a Greek translation of the Bible called the Septuagint. So they were different. Their culture was different. So that, that was Philip. We also know that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. That was one of the qualifications for being chosen to be one of the seven And in Acts chapter 21, he is the only person in the Bible who's actually referred to as the evangelist. So Philip had a heart for sharing the gospel with those who were lost. Now, Philip would have known Stephen. They would have worked together when the seven were chosen to minister to the Hellenistic widows. Uh, They may have been very close friends. So when the persecution broke out and Stephen was put to death, Philip and others began to flee Jerusalem, but they went out preaching the gospel as they went. And Philip headed north into Samaritan country, which was normally off limits and forbidden territory for most Jews, self-respecting Jews. So that's where he goes. So the next question we need to ask is, uh, who are the Samaritans? Because we learn in... um, Back in, uh, in verse 4 and 5, that Philip now goes down to the city of Samaria, verse 5, and began proclaiming Christ to them. So who are the Samaritans? Well, you're probably familiar with this, but we'll review it quickly. Uh, we kind of have to go back into the Old Testament to see the origin of the Samaritan people. It really started all the way back with Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son. Solomon was the king of Israel. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam would have been king over all 12 tribes. But he had kind of a tyrannical heart about him. And the 10 northern tribes sent emissaries to him and said, Look, your father put a lot of uh, heavy burdens on us, a heavy yoke for us to bear. If you will lighten that, we will serve you. And Rehoboam consulted with the older wise men who said, Yeah, I lighten their load. Then he consulted with the younger men and they said, Make the load heavier. And Rehoboam decided to follow the younger men's advice. And as a result of that, the 10 northern tribes broke away, they defected. They started, they created their own uh, nation with their own kings. So now you have Israel in the north. And Judah in the south. So now Israel is split into two two kingdoms. Israel in the north, all of their kings were bad. Uh, The ten northern tribes were basically guilty of chronic idolatry and rebellion. And as a result of that, God sent the Assyrians into the northern nation of Israel to punish them for their idolatry and their sin. As a result of that, the Assyrians, when they came in, they took a large part of the population of the Jews and took them out of the land and dispersed them out into the lands controlled by the Assyrians. And then they took these pagan Gentiles and they reseated them back into the land of Israel. And so we see, for example, in a map, the exile of the northern kingdom. The upper line is basically where the Assyrians uh, deported all these Jews out of the land. And the lower line shows where they took all these pagan Gentiles and imported them into Israel. So what began to happen at this time is that... uh, the imported Gentiles into Israel began to intermarry with the remaining Jews that were still in the land. So they became became a mixed breed of people. Not fully Jews, not fully Gentiles. They're mixed. They're intermarrying a lot. They also began to develop a mixed religion. So they hold to still some of the Judaism views because of some of the Jewish roots. But they also held to certain pagan aspects. So they embraced a a very syncretistic religion. A little of this and a little of that and mix it all together, throw it in the oven and what comes out, you get basically the Samaritan religion. They were also very uh, pro-Greek, which would have irritated the Jews to no end Because the Samaritans uh, embraced a lot of the Greek culture. So they were quite different than the Jews living in the southern kingdom. Uh, Later, the southern kingdom of Judah fell into a similar sin as the northern kingdom. So God sent the Babylonians to punish the southern kingdom of Judah. The Babylonians came and and carried off many Jews to Babylon, called the Babylonian Captivity. It lasted about 70 years. And then King Cyrus allowed them to go back, the Persian king allowed them to go back and into the land. When the Jews came back into the land, of course, Judah, uh, Israel, uh, and particularly the capital Jerusalem, had been destroyed. The wall had been torn down. The temple had been destroyed. So when they come back into the land, they start rebuilding it. Now the the Samaritans, who are half Jews and half Gentiles, in the north come down and say, let us help you rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. But the Jews, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, said, no, we reject you. You're a hybrid you're not true Jews, you cannot help us rebuild our temple. And as a result of that, the animosity between these two groups of people began to grow and become more uh, acidic in nature. And eventually, later on in the 4th century B.C., the Samaritans built their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, claiming that it was the only true temple where people should worship God at. So they, they built their own temple on top of, of Mount Gerizim. Now obviously that meant that now there are two rival temples. One in Jerusalem, where God said the temple should be. And then the Samaritans built their temple on Mount Gerizim. So again, a lot of competitive spirit, a lot of, a lot of hatred... Uh, developed between these two opposing uh, religions. Uh, in order to justify building a temple at Mount Gerizim, when God told the prophets, you build it in Jerusalem, and only in Jerusalem will be the place where you come and worship Me. In order to, to justify building their temple up on Mount Gerizim, they decided to take the Old Testament Scriptures and chop off everything except the, the five books of Moses. Moses. Because in the five books of Moses, God did not specify where the temple would be built. So their Bible became known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. That's all they accepted from the Old Testament. So there's a picture of Mount Gerizim, or they originally that's not the temple now. it's been destroyed. In fact, the Jews in 128 BC. came and destroyed that temple on top of Mount Gerizim. So again, a lot of hostility, a lot of anger uh, between these two groups. So again, you can see that uh, there's a picture of the uh, Samaritan Pentateuch. It only consists of the first five books of Moses, and that's all they accepted. So again, you have all of this history, centuries, generations of animosity and hatred building up between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it was so bad that if you were a Jew in Galilee and you wanted to go down to Judea, to Jerusalem, to worship at the temple, they would not go through Samaria. If you were a self-respecting Jew, you would, cross, you would go over to the Jordan River, you would cross over and get on the east side of the Jordan River, travel south to bypass Samaria, then cross the Jordan River and go to Jerusalem. I mean, that, that's why the Samaritans were off limits and they were despised and hated uh, by the Jews. What's so uh, interesting about this is that Jesus, even though the, the Jews looked upon the Samaritans as half-breeds, apostates, heretics, who were mixed both in race and in religion, and they would not associate them with all, at all, Jesus indicates that the gospel is for everyone. So remember even back in John chapter 4, when uh, Jesus and the disciples, they travel through Samaria, and Jesus has this incredible encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, at Jacob's well, and shares the gospel with her. And she comes to know the Lord, as do other people in the village in which she lives. And all of that really is is, uh, telegraphing, if you will, that the Gospel of Jesus Christ is not limited just to Jews. It's for everyone, just as the Great Commission indicates. So the Great Commission is when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you will see power to be My witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Even Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, when he wrote the Gospel, began to telegraph this very same truth. You remember, uh, it was Luke, and only Luke that tells a story about the man who helped the Jew that had been beaten up on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And the priest and the Levite, two Jews walked by and they wouldn't help him, but this one man stopped and helped that person and and put him on his donkey and took him to an inn and paid for his health care and his recovery. And who was that man? The good Samaritan. So that Luke is even recording how God's grace is, is, is anticipating the grace of God being poured out among uh, the Samaritans. And then later on, Luke will also record that when the ten lepers came to Jesus and wanted to be cleansed, and he cleansed all ten of them, the nine Jews just went on their way, but one came back and fell down and, and worshiped Jesus. And who is that? A Samaritan. So all of these are are hinting that the Gospel is going to have a great harvest in Samaria. So uh, there's going to be some new ground broken uh, now as the Gospel overflows the narrow banks of Israel and begins to pour out into the world. And that's where Philip comes in. So in verses uh, 5-7, through we find that Philip comes down, he preaches... And in verse 6, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. So we find that in verse 5 that Philip came down and he preached Christ to them. Christ crucified for our sins. Christ raised from the dead on the third day. He preached Christ to them. And obviously the, the miracles confirmed the reliability of the Gospel. So he was one who had, had the gift of miracles as well as a very gifted preacher as well. But there's no indication that Philip camped on any of the cultural or ethnic differences between the Samaritans and the Jews. And there's no indication that he told them that they were absolutely wrong to think that Mount Gerizim was a place that you worship God. He didn't bring up any of those issues. He did not look upon them as being half-breeds or as Gentiles. Philip looked upon them as being lost people who need the Gospel. And I think that's such a tremendous, important lesson for us today. As we're surrounded by people that we have a tendency to turn our noses up at. For example, illegal aliens in our community. And I'm all for a strong border wall. I think every country has a right to protect its border. But with illegal aliens that are already here, how do we look upon them as Christians? People to despise and just all we want to do is get them out of the country? Or as lost sinners who need the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the opportunity that God has brought them into America that hopefully they might hear the gospel. Or how about Muslims or abortionists or homosexuals? Do we just look down upon them and pray for God's judgment upon? Them? Or do we see them as lost souls who need the gospel? And what Philip is doing is he's training us how to view outsiders that you normally have a a heart to despise them and reject them. We need to look at them differently. We need to look at them as people who have a never-dying soul. People who need to hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the heart of Philip the evangelist. And so he goes and he... He preaches the gospel to these people who desperately needed to hear that they have a, a Savior if they will only accept Him by the grace of God. That they can be forgiven of their sins and go to heaven. In verse 6, we find that uh, the crowds were very receptive. With one accord, they were given attention to what was said by Philip. No doubt the signs and the miracles uh, had a role in that. Uh, He was casting out demons in verse 7. He was healing many who were paralyzed and lame. Great miracles were were being uh, performed by God through Philip. And so this certainly made everybody pay attention. And then we read in verse 8, that as a result there was much rejoicing going on in that city. So not only the miracles, the healings, the exorcisms, But the Gospel is finding good root uh, in their hearts. And so there was great joy in the midst of them. Uh, Even though they have sinned and were separated from God, Philip preaches that there's a way back to have fellowship with God through the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So all of this, what we read of here... Is really the second stage of the Great Commission that we know back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So Samaria is on the map. Samaria is one of the designated places where the gospel must go. And what's so interesting is that earlier in our Lord's ministry, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus told his disciples, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. That was a limited restriction of the Gospel to the Jew first. That's that's a biblical pattern. But once it goes to the Jews, now it goes to the Gentiles. And that's what the Great Commission is actually uh, showing us in this passage. But there's an interesting phenomenon that happens here. We read, if you'll uh, flip over to verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now what's interesting about this passage is that many of our Uh, charismatic friends say this proves that the Christian life really occurs in a two-stage experience. Uh, Just like the Samaritans. First, you get saved. You come to faith. uh, You hear the gospel. You get your sins forgiven. But then you need another experience later on in life where you actually get the baptism of the Spirit. The empowering of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of the two stage understanding. Of the Christian life. Now they would argue that. Uh, this is what happened at Pentecost. You have believers who received the Holy Spirit. spoken tongues as the outward sign. Of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing that's going on here. And that's, that becomes normative for the Christian experience. That's the way many charismatics understand this. So that you can be saved. But you're kind of a second class Christian until you get this second experience often referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit and often manifested by speaking in tongues. And that's now when you get the whole package. You get the whole nine yards. And you're really on your way to being a productive fruit bearing Christian. So they would argue that what happened in Pentecost happens in Samaria, so that establishes it as the the normative pattern. Now, when you talk about Pentecost, obviously that's a unique situation. Uh, Pentecost was definitely unique. The disciples had clearly come to know and believed in the Lord Jesus during His earthly ministry. And Jesus told them that they needed to wait in Jerusalem uh, until He sent the gift down from the Father, which would be the Holy Spirit. So they had to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which was poured out upon them at Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, again, was a very unique event. It was very unrepeatable, just like the virgin birth is unrepeatable, just like the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are unrepeatable. So was Pentecost. It was very, very unique. Uh, it It had to be the way it was, given the fact that they had come to believe in Jesus prior to the event of Pentecost. But Samaria, what's happening here at Samaria is also something that is the exception, not the rule. This is a very unique situation that's going on here. You cannot argue that this becomes a fundamental for the Christian experience. And that for several reasons. Uh, first, the apostolic teaching supports that this two-stage Christian experience is the exception. So you really can't use what's happening at Samaria to argue for the normative experience of the charismatics in order to to really be filled with the Spirit or to be baptized by the Spirit. For example, notice what Peter says back in Acts chapter 2 verse 38. He tells the, the Jews to repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So from Pentecost on, Peter seems to say quite clearly that when you repent, and baptism is associated with repentance, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no long period of time separating the two. Peter gives no indication that that's going to be the normative pattern for the Christian church. He says, repent and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, Peter seems to be quite clear. No evidence of a a period of time between those two events. Later on, the Apostle Paul emphasizes something similar when he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. So in other words, if you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you're not even a Christian. And Paul gives no evidence at all that there is a gap between receiving some of the Holy Spirit and other parts of the Holy Spirit. Like you can receive the Holy Spirit early to at least uh, bring you to faith, but you don't receive the baptism till another later point in time. Paul gives no indication of that. So in fact, if you look just at the book of Romans and you see everything that happens to a believer right when he first comes to faith in Jesus Christ, you kind of wonder how anybody could believe that all these things or some of these things would be delayed by a certain period of time. For example, when you come to faith, your heart is circumcised. The love of God is poured out in your hearts. We walk in newness of life. We're united with Christ in His death and resurrection. We've died to the law. We serve in newness of the Spirit. We're free from the law of sin and death. We can now walk by the Spirit. We can set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We can put to death the deeds of the body. We're led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. We have the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And on and on and on. There is no indication that Paul thought, okay, you got saved here, but then you had to wait a period of time and seek after this additional experience before you really get the full harvest of the Spirit's work. Again, you just don't see that uh, in, in other places in the New Testament. And besides that, if you look uh, very carefully at Acts chapter 8, verse 16, look at how uh, Luke describes this in verse 16. He says, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them yet, they had simply or only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And what Luke is, is doing here is he's saying this is unusual. This is not the way it normally happens at all. He said that the Spirit of God had not fallen upon them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the reason why Luke is spelling this out is because this is strange to him. This is not the way it's normally happened. So the word simply or only, your translation may have the word only, implies that receiving the Spirit and with water baptism, are, they, they normally go together. Not, not as a cause and effect, but normally when someone came to faith in Jesus Christ, they received the Spirit, and then you'd be baptized in water as the outward sign. But normally those things are, are relatively close together. So that it's most unusual to receive the sign of baptism without also having first received the thing signified by the baptism. In other words, water baptism is given to those who show evidence that they have been regenerated, that they've received the Holy Spirit, that they put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But what Luke is observing, what happened to the Samaritans is they received the sign of baptism, but they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. This is not normal. This is very unusual. Unusual. Because the sign of baptism normally goes to those who have received the Spirit already. So this is not normative. This is unusual. And Luke's expression here in verse 16 seems to clearly be showing his reservation. This this is something that's very different. So the apostolic teaching does not support a two-stage of the Christian life like the charismatics would have many believe. But also, the apostolic practice supports this two-stage Christian experience as the exception. Because the apostles were not in the habit of running around everywhere evaluating and endorsing those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ before they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, The very fact that Peter and John go to Samaria... In the case, this is very this is a very unique event because they were not doing that in all the other places where people were hearing the gospel and coming to faith. It didn't require apostles to go down there before they received the Holy Spirit. But something at Samaria was very very unique and different. Something required Peter and John to go down there before they could actually receive the Spirit of God. So again, this is a Something that is quite, quite unique. And it's something that uh, marks it off as being not in the norm. So let me, uh, as we uh, begin to look at John and Peter's ministry to the Samaritans, let me just back up for a second and talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit promised in the New Covenant. Uh, The reason why Peter and John had to go down there and be the, the vehicle by which the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit is very, very important. And we, we backtrace to the Old Testament, and we see that one of the marquee gifts and blessings that God promised in the New Covenant is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can find this in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Zechariah, who all prophesy that there is a time coming in the future, and God would pour out His Spirit in the new covenant upon His people, starting with with the Jews, with Israel. And remember, Peter back in Acts chapter two quotes extensively from Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter two. So the Old Testament had a lot of of promises that when the New Covenant comes, one of the greatest, most precious blessings of the New Covenant would be this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In addition to that, the gift of the Holy Spirit was not going to be limited just to Jews only, but would also be given to the Gentiles As well, so this. Remember what Jesus said all the way back up in John chapter ten, verse sixteen. He says, "I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Now, who is he referring to? These would be Gentile believers, Samaritan believers. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice." And they will become one flock with one shepherd. So Jesus made it very clear that His sheep, His chosen people, would one day include sheep from another fold. Not the Jewish fold, but the Greek fold and the Gentile fold. And they would come in, but they would become one flock with one shepherd. So all of this suggests that when the Spirit of God is poured out upon the Jews in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, that it wasn't going to just be restricted to the Jews. That ultimately it would be poured out upon these other sheep from another fold who would comprise ultimately one flock with one shepherd. Now by the way, that did not mean that in the Old Testament the believers did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Uh, They certainly did. Uh, There's no way that you can be regenerated and come to faith in, in, in the Lord in the Old Testament without the Spirit of God indwelling you and changing out your heart. So the Spirit indwelt the believers in the Old Testament just like He indwells them now. But in the New Covenant, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit has has a greater, fuller, richer, more powerful ministry than He did under the Old Covenant. And that's what uh, was experienced at Pentecost. That's what's being experienced now by the Samaritans. But what we see is that Jesus Christ comes and His ministry is to be the mediator of a better covenant. He's the mediator of the New Covenant. Hebrews 8.6 This is not a future new covenant. This has already been enacted, past tense, on better promises. Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. He is now the mediator of a new covenant. It's not a future fulfillment. It's a present fulfillment. So that as the mediator of a new covenant, which was originally promised to Israel and Judah, what the New Testament makes clear is it's not going to be restricted to Israel and Judah. In fact, the Gentiles and the Samaritans are now going to be grafted in to those same blessings. And their receiving the Holy Spirit is the great showcase of that event taking place. We see that the blessings of the New Covenant are not restricted to the Jews. In Romans 11, Paul says that some of the branches were broken off. That would be the Jewish branches are broken off for their unbelief. But you being a wild olive. Who are the wild olive branches? Gentiles were grafted in among them, that is, the believing Jews, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So now you have the wild olive Gentiles that are being grafted into this one covenant tree They partake with the believing Jews of the rich root of the olive tree. The covenants made with Abraham and Moses and David. The rich root out of which this one people of God uh, grew up out of. So now, believing Gentiles are grafted in and partake with the believing Jew of the rich root of the olive tree and they share in all the blessings which includes the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3.7, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So if you're a Gentile and you have faith, you're now a son of Abraham. And not only that in verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So what is an heir? You inherit all the covenant blessings that were promised to Abraham. Whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, as long as you have faith, you're an heir. So that sets up theologically why it was so important that the Samaritans uh, receive the Holy Spirit and why this would have been something that needed to have special emphasis or the Jews never would have accepted this. The Jews had such animosity towards the Samaritans, they never would have accepted them as fellow believers in their Messiah had there not been such a big deal made out of them receiving the Holy Spirit at the hands of of John and Peter. But Christ as a new covenant mediator didn't come just to save the Jews. He came to save sinners from all nations. And that's why we read in Revelation 5, 9, That they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So the new covenant mediator Jesus Christ came to save sinners, His elect from every nation, tongue and tribe. And they would inherit all the blessings of Israel, including this marquee blessing of the Holy Spirit. So now quickly, uh, Peter and John show up in verse 14 through 17. It's interesting, um, John uh, goes to the Samaritans. And I think Luke, as he's writing this, must have kind of chuckled uh, in his heart when he records that it was Peter and John who now come to the Samaritans. You remember earlier when Jesus and the disciples were passing through Samaria on another occasion and they would not accept Jesus? They wouldn't let Him slow down or stop or anything? And it was James and John that came up to Jesus and said, Lord, if You want, we'll command fire from heaven to come down and just exterminate them all. So John really kind of has, he's kind of like the religious arsonist. He's the guy who, 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 who was just as soon see the Samaritans all just burnt to a crisp. And, uh, and yet now it's John that's coming back to these same Samaritans with the Gospel with a different kind of fire. Not the fire to fall from heaven to kill them all and torch them all, but the fire of the Holy Spirit to be breathed down upon them. So I, I think Luke may have uh, probably chuckled in his own heart as he recorded how, how, how John has been transformed. How before he wanted them destroyed, now he wanted them saved and filled with the Spirit. And this is a testimony to God's transforming grace. But now Peter, we come to Peter. We have to remember the significance of Peter. Because Jesus Christ had given Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And this is a very important uh, 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 responsibility for, for Peter. He becomes the key keeper so that the Spirit of God was intentionally delayed by God not being given to the Samaritans until Peter showed up. And when Peter showed up, as he and John began to lay hands on the Samaritans who had believed, they started receiving the Holy Spirit. And the significance of this is twofold. Number one, again, it shows that these Samaritan believers are now united with the Jewish believers. And there's apostolic authority to prove it. That Peter, one of the apostles, is God's chosen instrument to bestow the Holy Spirit to these non-Jews. To show that the Samaritans were now embracing the Jewish Messiah Receiving the Jewish gift and promise of the Holy Spirit so that now they become one with the Jews in one new body. One new man, if you will. That they become united together within the body of Christ. So that Peter's presence showed that God sanctioned the Samaritan believers into the church. It affirmed God's approval of their entrance into the body of Christ. Now, When it says that He laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, there may have been some external evidence. Maybe they spoke in tongues. I don't know. It's not indicated. But it was a very clear manifestation of the Holy Spirit falling upon them. But whatever it was, it was proof that now these Samaritans were equal with the Jews in being partakers of the Messiah. They were now one in faith and one in spirit. And this was necessary because without Peter and John being there, giving that apostolic approval, and actually the means of them receiving the Holy Spirit, there probably would have been a great schism break out. The Samaritan, the Jews would not have accepted the Samaritans, and they would have broke off into two separate churches at the very outset. But with Peter and John there, kind of as the glue, kind of as the one holding both groups together, endorsing and authenticating the gift of the Holy Spirit to these Samaritans, well, then it becomes clearer. God has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. That now Gentiles are coming in and sharing in all the blessings that flow from Jesus Christ. And without their presence... The Jews never would have accepted the Samaritans. So you see the importance of Peter and John being there. And the other aspect of this is just uh, to show that um, basically uh, the apostles are the authority of the church and that the Samaritans need to come under that authority as do the Jews. So Peter is God's instrument in bestowing the new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit to non-Jews. And he'll do it again in Acts 10 when Cornelius the Gentile uh, gets saved. But all of this is to show that there is unity and equality now among the sheep that the shepherd comes to save. They are one flock with one shepherd. They're one in Christ. So in conclusion, Uh, The events in Samaria, I I don't think, have any precise parallel today. The two-stage experience is uh, not normative for Christianity. It was a very unique event in the early church as the gospel is starting to leave Israel and go out to all the Gentile lands. But it was the unifying ministry of Peter that was necessary to prevent schism and disharmony and divisions from developing within uh, the Christian community. But we also see, finally, just the importance of the Holy Spirit for the Christian life. Uh, If the Samaritans had never received the Holy Spirit, uh, they never would have lived a fruitful Christian life. Uh, They Obviously, you need the Spirit of God to even believe in Christ. You need the new birth. You need the indwelling Spirit of God to give us the gift of repentance and faith. But even as Christians, it's impossible to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, Without the Spirit of God, we're like a ship stranded on the beach when the tide is out. She is stuck motionless and powerless and lifeless, and cannot move until the tide begins to to flow in again and lift up the ship from the sands and give it buoyancy and freedom to do what it was created to do, and that is to sail the seas. So that without the Spirit of God, we are beached on the sand. We're stuck in the spiritual mud, unable to move. And we need the living waters of the Spirit of God to lift us up And enable us to make progress in fulfilling God's calling of our life. And that's why as Christians, we are exhorted to be filled with the Spirit and to walk by the Spirit and to show forth the fruit of the Spirit. And we need to remember that the Spirit is not just a power, He's a person. The Spirit of God is a third person of the Holy Trinity. And it's really not so much about us getting more of the Spirit but of the spirit getting more of us. And when we see the big deal that's made out of Peter and John coming down to Samaria and being the means of them receiving the spirit and how important the spirit of God is, we really are reminded of how how much we need the spirit of God in our lives today as well. But how do we grow in the spirit? How do we give more of ourselves to the Spirit? We already have the Spirit indwelling us as believers. But how do we give more of ourselves to the Spirit of God? Well, I think Jesus had the answer in John 15 when He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from Me you can do nothing. I think for any of us that feel like our lives are kind of beached on the sand, to feel like we're kind of spiritually stuck in a rut, and we just don't seem to have the freedom and the liberty of living for Christ, and, and we need to give ourselves more to the Spirit of God. How does that work its way out? By our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's as we abide in Christ, and Christ abides in us, that the Spirit of God releases more of His grace and His power within our life. You see, the grace of the Holy Spirit flows in our lives as a result of our relationship with Jesus Christ. As we rejoice in His salvation as we go to the Word of God and as we review His promises and and pray to Him and fellowship with Christ and, and adore Him and love Him and worship Him through the Word of God, the Spirit of God possesses more of us and our lives begin to show more of His grace and more of His fruit. So at this Christmas season, as we celebrate the birth of our Mediator, the birth of our Redeemer, who through his blood has broken down the dividing wall between the Jew and the non Jew, which, is, by the way, all of us, to my knowledge, are all come from that wild olive tree. But we've been grafted in to these incredible promises so that we too have received the Spirit of the living God. We too are one flock with one shepherd with our believing Jewish brothers. We should celebrate that because that's what Christmas ultimately is pointing toward. The salvation that Christ has accomplished. The gift of the Spirit by whom and only by whom we can live a life that pleases Him. This is not a second stage experience. We have the Spirit of God now. We just need to give the Spirit more of ourselves and submit to Him and yield to Him. And we do that as we spend time growing in our relationship with Christ. So may God help us to do that. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for this uh, very important passage, this revelation given to us in the book of Acts of just the importance of the Spirit of God and just how it was so vital in welcoming these Samaritan believers into the fold. And Lord, we thank You that by Your grace You have opened our hearts, that You have granted to us repentance and faith that we might believe in Jesus Christ. And that You have given us the Spirit of God to indwell us. And oh God, as we oftentimes just feel the stagnancy, as we feel how... Oftentimes, we're not progressing in, the, in our Christian lives, Lord. We know that we need more of the Spirit. And the Spirit needs more of us. But Lord, that will grow as we focus on Christ, as we seek to know Him more and live for Him more and to desire His will in our life more. And through that, Christ dwells in us through His Spirit that we might become more like Him and become better witnesses in a world that needs the gospel of Christ. So, Father, fill us with Your Spirit. Help us to walk by the Spirit. And help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For we ask it in His name. Amen.